Hello and welcome to season two of Chic Podcast with Kat Sark, where we explore the most pressing issues in fashion studies, fashion education, culture, media, and technology from a perspective of decoloniality, sustainability, and social justice. The 23rd episode was recorded remotely with two of my colleagues, Brooks Kaiser, who is Professor of Environmental and Resource Economics in the Department of Sociology, Environmental and Business Economics at the University of Southern Denmark, SDU. And my other colleague, Elsie Skjöl, who is an Associate Professor of Design and Sustainability at the Royal Danish Academy in Copenhagen, and whom listeners will recognize from several previous episodes in Season 1. Elsie has worked on multiple projects trying to make the Danish fur industry more sustainable. And Brooks organized and invited me to a webinar panel to discuss the Danish mink farming industry after the Danish government's orders to put down all minks in November 2020 because the coronavirus had started mutating. This resulted in gradual extermination of all mink animals throughout 2020 and a mass extermination by November 2020 across different farms in northern Denmark. It also generated a big scandal, forcing the Minister of Agriculture to resign and the Prime Minister to apologize to the mink farmers for depriving them of their livelihoods and promising compensation. This was also a significant setback in how well Denmark was handling the pandemic up until that point. The threat of the mutation forced other countries to temporarily close their borders to Danish transports. But the quick response and the imposed lockdown in northern Denmark did prevent a new mutation. And in the end, it was the UK mutation that kept the infection numbers higher than usual in Denmark for most of the winter months. While the media discourse was dominated by debates about compensation and the economy of mink farming, There were relatively few conversations about animal welfare and the unethical practice of killing animals for fashion. Some environmentalists were concerned with the way the exterminations took place and wondered why there was no strict safety protocol or why not more experts were consulted with experience from previous contaminations and farm infections. The question of banning fur farming completely only raises more economic questions of passing on profit opportunities and leaving this industry up to countries with even fewer regulations. By now, the Danish government has issued compensations to the farmers who lost their incomes, and industry experts believe that it is not likely for any of them to start mink farming again. But the experts also predict that the price for mink fur will double in the next 10 years. So it means that if more EU countries ban fur farming, the production will move to unregulated countries like China, Russia and Eastern Europe. According to PETA's website, the list of countries that have already banned fur farming includes Austria, Belgium, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Croatia, the Czech Republic, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Northern Ireland, Macedonia, Serbia, Slovakia, the UK, Norway, and Japan. 
Denmark has a long-standing tradition of farming and producing high-quality mink fur for export to China. While there are very few people in Denmark who are still wearing fur, Copenhagen Fur is a powerful organization and a trade organization, and the country may not yet be ready to fully transition to a post-fur society. So in this episode, first you will hear my conversation with my colleague Brooks, which took place after our expert panel earlier this year. Dear Brooks, welcome to Chic Podcast. Could you please tell us more about your work at SDU and your current research? Hi, and thanks for having me. I'm a professor of resource economics and economic historian at the Department of Sociology, Environmental and Business Economics at SDU with my office on the Esper campus. Most of my work these days is on Arctic marine resource issues, and in particular, how changing resource bases, e.g. from climate change or invasive species or habitat destruction, become larger societal transformations. In the past, these transformations have usually been intertwined with commodification and marketization of natural capital and the anthropocentric resources that we derive from it. Um, and as such, decision makers have fixed on profit and economic growth as quantified measures of well-being. That has created environmental, social, and economic problems in many dimensions outside of this measure, though. And it is, for example, why we need 17 different UN Sustainable Development Goals now to try to counterbalance this hyper-focus on profit and GDP. My research tries to harness the useful tools from microeconomics, those that help us understand decision-making and incentives to better inform decisions that are trying to weigh a multiplicity of sustainable development concerns. Earlier this year, you organized a panel discussion on mink farming in Denmark with experts from the industry, law professors, and environmentalists. Please tell us more about the panel, um, what were some of the issues that were discussed, and some of your personal takeaways. In line with my interests in resource uses, transitions, and societal impact, I found the mink farming debate and the decision to call Denmark's 17 million mink over COVID-19 fears uh, absolutely fascinating. I didn't know much in detail about it, and I decided that a wide-ranging panel of expertise would be valuable to me and to those of us trying to understand the complexities. The webinar started with an economic overview of the industry, which highlighted the challenge and benefits of the industry to Denmark, uh, its multi-billion kroner market value, uh, and its evolution in recent decades to becoming uh, a world-leading mink fur production industry. One of the challenges has, of course, been markets with something of a polarization of responses from the public in terms of anti-fur interests who get negative value from the continuation of the industry through to people with a quite high willingness to pay for fur as a status good. This has mainly driven a globalization in consumption, but also production, with some farms moving to Eastern Europe or China, for example. But mink fur becomes higher quality through successful breeding programs, so Denmark has been able to maintain a higher quality than competitors through its breeding lines. This advantage cannot withstand the culling 
um, so that while the industry shutdown is technically temporary, it's perhaps not likely that the industry can make a strong comeback in Denmark, especially if other locations are able to operate more cheaply. Uh, this cheaper operation might come from lower standards of animal welfare, though. The second presenter was an animal scientist who has worked his whole career on understanding mink behavior and creating protocols for mink farms to operate in humane and healthy ways. His insights included uh, an understanding that mink lives in farms are not substantially different from wild mink and probably have higher welfare than other farmed animals. Uh, they are substantial protocols in place in Denmark that are also being used elsewhere with some increasing frequency. Uh, and if the industry is to come back, these standards will need to be upheld and expanded. One of the many tragedies of the culling decision is the biomass from the mink was disposed very badly. Uh, the next speaker came from Lambeau Suit and he has expertise in waste and circular economy. He made clear that the existing system has ways for properly disposing of the biomass and using it to create energy. Um, and he frankly couldn't understand why this couldn't have been followed um, instead of creating horror images of zombie mink and threats of polluted waters um, from these dead mink in uh, giant mass graves. The final speaker was a law professor who made clear that the government was not following the law in its decision-making in spite of plenty of precedent for dealing with disease outbreaks in farmed animals, among other things. Driven by fear and a sense that the need for quick action outstripped democratic deliberation in the case of an exponentially growing pandemic threat, the government acted beyond its authority in costly ways. Um, after the, these four presentations, we had a panel, uh, and the panel included all of the speakers, plus you and me and another resource economist from SDU. And we discussed these issues uh, and more, and in particular, what the government should be doing to assist the suddenly minkless farmers. My own takeaway is that the government should be working hard to assist these farmers and the regions that they live in to transition to some other livelihoods since the downside risks of mink farming seem pretty high and the long-term outlook for mink farming seems poor. The government's role in facilitating the transition should be to lessen the impacts on those whose ways of life need to give way to something new and also to make the something news that come along uh, to be about things that are more broadly sustainable for everyone. Seeing as there are no clear answers or solutions to the fur farming issue yet, what about shifting the discourse in new directions, specifically away from the fur industry and towards a bigger perspective of ethics and sustainability? What can we all do in terms of helping that shift in conversation? Yes, this is exactly what I think needs to happen. In terms of what we can all do, I think whatever we can do to facilitate social, educational, and technological innovation to improve how the resource base, including human and natural capital, is used for a redefined and broader measure of well-being is good. So for social scientists like me, we need to understand what such a measure looks like and how we get to it. This will mean tackling tough questions about who has standing in determining values 
in transparent and fair ways. Uh, and this is likely to require a good amount of resetting of the political and social landscape for decision-making. An example of this is probably the SDGs. Although they are certainly helpful in framing the problem, they are not sufficient because they mostly deal with quantities, not values, uh, and because there are no clear criteria for what to do when two issues are competing or incompatible. On the other hand, there's also no clear criteria for what to do when they produce synergies and you might want to foster uh, two things together at the same time. Concepts uh, like green GDP, where you supplement traditional GDP accounting with information about pollution and natural resource use, uh, are steps in the right direction, but they're also really incomplete on important issues like culture and biodiversity that have many different dimensions uh, that, again, sometimes conflict with one another. Uh, but these bigger conversations about such wicked problems need to happen, and that's part of what the webinar series aims to do. If you could advise the Danish government on regulating or banning the fur industry, what would your personal and professional recommendations be? How should this be regulated now and after the COVID-19 pandemic subsides? I think bans are difficult. As an economist, it's in our training uh, to try to seek structures that are incentive compatible and create the outcomes you intend. A ban in Denmark is likely to simply push the industry to other locations without changing the global demand and supply very much, especially in the short and medium run. But heavy regulation that addresses the various costs to society from the industry, e.g. pollution and disease control, including throughout the supply chain, uh, and that includes mechanisms for a social voice in the decision-making, e.g. the welfare protocols, uh, should definitely be used as a tool. Uh, and that may be enough to keep the industry from being attractive in Denmark. At the global scale, uh, we know that bans on trade and e.g. endangered species often create artificial value from this very scarcity. So again, it's unclear that a ban will be effective. I'd rather see efforts to create things that people would rather own or do with their money than fur and let the industry move along into oblivion like, I don't know, A-track tapes. Um, although I don't know a ton about the business details, I think that uh, Schwinard's work with Patagonia is a good example of trying to provide such products and then to keep the profits in a healthy system for change. How do you think we should educate the next generation in business, environmental studies, as well as in fashion and design to understand this problem and work towards change? I think greater emphasis on understanding supply chains, not only for their local or individual impacts on direct costs, but for their regional and global consequences uh, for social costs, is a potential starting point. I can see developing some interesting interdisciplinary courses that do something along these lines, whether it's something historical like consequences to whale species from corset fashion, um, or current day looking at carbon emissions from shipping goods all around the world. 
And now you will hear my other colleague, Elsie Skjöl, weigh in on the fur farming issues in Denmark. Hello, my name is Elsie Skjöl. I am associate professor at the Royal Danish Academy, and I'm also the head of the new fashion textile program called Fashion, Clothing and Textile, New Landscapes for Change. Research on the fur sector here in uh, DK that I conducted with uh, my research team uh, when I was working at Design School Calling. That was in uh, 2014 to 2018. The typical question I get, which is what will happen with the Danish fur sector post-COVID? What will the government do in terms of regulation? And... um, How will it be working? Up until November 2020, we had between uh, 15 and 17 million uh, mink animals, approximately 1,100 mink farms in uh, in Denmark. And uh, because of the, the spread of this uh, mutant virus, they were all uh, killed within a few months. So uh, the fact of the matter is that we don't have uh, any breeding animals left here in Denmark. Previous, the, uh, the world largest, uh, world's largest auction house, uh, Copenhagen Fur, which was placed out in uh, Glostrup, north of Copenhagen, uh, has been closed down. Uh, and this all means that it's um, any uh, uh, mink or fur industry in the future here in Denmark, because uh, it takes about 30 to 40 years to build up good breeding animals and all these uh, practices. It was about 100 years of uh, mink farming in Denmark that was uh, ended. To us in the research team, uh, we never worked to uh, to First, firstly to promote fur in any sense at all, but we looked into it uh, with the aim of, uh, of locating anything that could stimulate sustainable practices in the wider industry and what we could learn from, from fur. And first of all, what we learned was that, uh, that it seemed like the fur debate is, in a, in a sense, the mother of all sustainability discussions because it started further back than the general discussion about sustainability in the fashion industry that has only really got widespread within the last years. So the fur debate was already raging full on back in the uh, 90s and in particularly in the mid-2000s. Uh, and here in DK, we had a program that kind of really highlighted anti movement's opinion that it is uh, really wrong to keep mink animals in these uh, uh, large uh, buildings, uh, so many animals together, only to get us pretty garments. And there was a really, really huge critique of the way these animals were kept and farmed and the conditions under which they um, treated and it caused uh, really a great critical debate towards the industry. And that time, and and the uh, critique of the industry goes, of course, back to all the anti-establishment movements of the uh, movements of the um, of the 1970s, like the environmental movement, the women's movement, anti-capitalism, all of these ideas that we still discuss. And what interested us, us a lot in the research team was how come is it that problems we discuss with the fur sector are much more widespread in the remaining fashion sector. And yet, it seems that the fashion sector has been able to go under radar. We have uh, allowed uh, the fashion industry to really uh, exploit nature, exploit animals, exploit uh, human labor, all of this to create a huge uh, environmental mess. 
and to uh, distort a lot of things uh, for us and to also um, can say create a um, a speed and volume of products that is really not healthy for anyone at all so how come is it that the fur debate is very tense and uh, we see very very uh, dramatic demonstrations and and uh, actions and uh, and so forth against uh, fur but not against the general fashion industry that puzzled us a lot. So we went back in history and found that tracing all back to the Middle Ages, fur has always been central in moral debates. And this was interesting. So it seems that there is something about fur that generates more heated debates, even if we have other materials and other practices in the wider fashion industry that are just as, uh, you can say, bad, like fossil fashion that it's called with the polyester and microplastic problems with exploitation of workforce and all what I said before. So that was quite interesting to us. Another thing that we found very, very, very inspiring and uh, interesting was the way then fur was treated in the design process and in the use phase. Because basically there is a zero waste design in fur. Uh, even the tiniest little scraps of fur are being collected and um, and was shipped to um, Greece and other countries where they were put stitched together by hand to pieces of, uh, they call them fur fabric. So nothing was wasted and uh, lots of the furrier techniques was all about using every little scrap. Then it was uh, very closely connected with user-led design. So uh, lots of fur design is uh, very much linked with the user practices of uh, of customers so it's um, is relatable and it's uh, and it's used a lot everywhere we looked we saw that there were very well functioning fur, uh, service systems to to do maintenance to do repairs and to do redesign and there was also widespread uh, resale of fur also made uh, studies of handed down fur so we found fur garments that were still in use after uh, 30 40 50, 60, even 70, 80 years. So so that put into perspective, why are all of these things functioning in the first sector and not in the general fashion sector? And one of the things that we could tell was that um, because fur is so expensive, uh, every little scrap needs to be used because it's an investment. And what we asked ourselves was, if we uh, had the same reality with all other materials, would we treat those materials with the same as, as if if they were very precious because we don't do that today. We have increased the use of low-cost materials only to make a system where we can just use these fashion products for a very short time and then just dis- get rid of them, which is the overall problem. And so finally, I will also say a finding that we found particularly interesting, which was that every time uh, we saw people coming into a room where there were fur, everyone went directly uh, to touch it. And so one of the ideas we we had was that because there is this uh, tactility and this obvious correlation between this piece of fur and the animal who who gave it away or uh, from which it was uh, taken by us human 
Uh, it's a very direct link, so we understand that this came from an animal, this came from nature, we had to actually kill this animal to get this uh, piece of fur. And whereas with the remaining fashion industry, uh, it has become completely detached. Most people act as if garments grow out of the shelves in the shop, uh, and as if... Um, there's completely no connection at all whatsoever about where does this material come from, how was it retrieved, how was the garment made, was it uh, shipped across the globe and caused a lot of uh, CO2 emissions, what not. So this appreciation of where it came from and who made it has completely uh, gone lost in the remaining fashion industry, but it has not been lost uh, when you look at fur. So again, uh, this is really not that we wish to promote fur, but we could tell that there was something interesting here that we need to learn in the remaining sector. So to sum this, as a researcher, I have found this fur research extremely interesting because I work with sustainable transition work in the fashion industry. And I think both in terms of these very heated and tense discussions, there's a lot to learn. So I use it a lot still in my teaching to discuss, does sustainable materials exist? Is that something we can recognize? Or isn't it that all materials really have very problematic uh, aspects. What is sustainability uh, about? What do we have the right to do as a humans towards animals, towards nature? How can we appreciate more uh, the garments that have already been made? And how can we uh, create new ways of uh, designing and uh, designing also the whole system so that it's a lot more about appreciation than what we have now? Altogether, I think we can all learn from the first sector and uh, we have made some uh, reports that are all out in the public that you're most welcome to uh, to read and perhaps Kat Sack who is making this podcast will be so kind to to give you uh, some links thank you so much for listening that's it for the 23rd episode of Chic podcast I'd like to thank Brooks Kaiser and Elsa Skjöl for taking the time to record this episode with me and for all their work in sustainability. The music you hear is Bach's Prelude in C major, performed by the very talented Matteo Tanzi. Thank you for listening. Please share the link to this episode on your social media channels. You can find me on Instagram under at Canadian Fashion Scholars. And until next time. <laughs>